start this morning with a, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so there's a, there's a section that, if you're not familiar with it, it, it's an allegory of the Christian life, and it's just basically giving us a picture of what it looks like through the eyes of a man, a pilgrim, the guy's name is Pilgrim at the beginning, and through the picture he gets born again, and then his name is Christian. And it's talking about his progress from being born again up until he enters the celestial city, which is heaven. And it's just full of a lot of good stuff. There's one part that I want to bring up this morning. When he comes into contact with Apollyon, and in the allegory, Apollyon is basically the accuser, the devil. And I, I want to read just a, a brief section of that. And this is in Old English, so follow with me. I just want, what I want you to hear is the accusations of Apollyon against Christian. <clears throat> Apollyon says to Christian, now let me start here. By this I perceive thou art one of my subjects, talking to Christian. For all that country is mine, and I am the prince and God of it. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? Were it not that I hope thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. Christian says, I was born indeed in your dominion, but your service was hard, and your wages such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I was come to years, I did as other prudent persons do. Look out if perhaps I might mend myself. Apollyon. There is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects, neither will I as yet lose thee. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee. Christian says, But I've let myself to another, even to the king of princes. How can I with fairness go back with thee? Apollyon, thou hast done in this according to the proverb, changed a bad for a worse. But it is ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants after a while to give him the slip and return again to me. Do thou so too, and all shall be well. <clears throat> Christian says, I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How then can I go back from this and not be hanged as a traitor? Apollyon says, Thou didst the same to me, and yet I am willing to pass by all, if now thou wilt yet again turn and go back. Christian says, What I promised thee was before I came of age. And besides, I count that the prince under whose banner now I stand is able to absolve me, yea, and to pardon also what I did as to my compliance with thee. And besides, O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak truth, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company and country better than thine. Therefore leave off to persuade me further. I am his servant and I will follow him. Now listen to this. Apollyon says, Consider again when thou art in cold blood what thou art like to meet with in the way that thou goest. Thou knowest that for the most part his servants come to an ill end because they are transgressors against me and my ways. How many of them have been put to shameful deaths? And besides, thou countest his service better than mine, whereas he never came yet from the place where he is to deliver any that served him out of our hands. But as for me, how many times, as all the world very well knows, have I delivered, either by power or fraud, those that have faithfully served me from him and his, though taken by them, and so I will deliver thee. 
So there's this interchange going on. And Christian keeps saying, I'm a new man. I've, I've been born again. And Apollyon keeps saying, yeah, but I can help you out. I can do you better. Come on back to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Christian, his forbearing at present to deliver them is on purpose to try their love, whether they will cleave to him to the end. Talking about his new boss, his new Savior. And as for the ill end thou sayest they come to, that is most glorious in their account. For for present deliverance they do not much expect it, for they stay for their glory, and then they shall have it when their prince comes in his and the glory of his angels. Apollyon says, Thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him, and how dost thou think to receive wages of him? Anybody ever heard that voice? Anybody ever heard the devil whisper in your ear, You're unfaithful. You say you're a Christian. I saw what you did yesterday. I heard what you said yesterday. And you call yourself a Christian? Thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him. And how dost thou think to receive wages of him? I want to start this morning again with a review of, let me see if you remember this, Asian Station. We may have a problem, Ken. You may need to advance me if you can. I've got slide change error. We haven't went over this in a few weeks at least, probably been a couple months actually. <clears throat> Asian Station. This is the, basically the outline of our Christian walk. Expiation is God removing the guilt of our sin from us. Exit. Expiation. It goes away. <coughs> Propitiation is the act of God pouring out His anger against our sin upon the person of Christ. That is the act of propitiation. Jesus also is said to have become a propitiation. We'll talk about that later. But for now, let's say that propitiation is God punishing our sins in the person of Christ. Imputation, now that He's done away with our... He's taken the guilt of our sin away. He's put our sin on Christ and punished our sin on Christ. Imputation is God giving us the righteousness of Christ as a gift. He imputed to us, gave to us, Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus lived a sinless life. We sang about it all morning long. And God credits that to our account. That's imputation. And we could close the doors and walk out after that and say, well, okay, we're done here. But that leads us to a place of justification where it means that we have a right to be in God's presence. We'll talk about justification some more today too. There's a place... Where sin and shame are powerless. That's justification. When we are born again, justification is a judicial pronouncement. The gavel swings, the judge says, not guilty. One done, finished. We begin in the process of sanctification. God sets us apart for Himself, which is what sanctified means, set apart. And then we begin the process of living out what God has worked into us. That's the process of sanctification. And this all sums up the, the process of salvation 
Before the foundation of the world, I was saved. At one point in time, I was saved. I am being saved, and one day in glory, I will be completely saved. Asian Station. We haven't went over it in a while, and there's so much of this in here this morning. So I wanted to go over that. So if you would stand, and let's read the Scripture one more time together. We'll read the Scripture, then we'll pray, then we'll jump into our message. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, the same passage that Steve read for us earlier. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Nope. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we have... We have a great need to understand what we're about to hear. We have a great need, God, to be well armed with the weapons that you're about to give us in your word. I pray that by the power of your spirit, God, that you would speak to us, empower us, embolden us, and send us out into your world to proclaim these truths and to live like we believe them. Help us now, God, by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated it would look real weird if you stood up the whole time, just so you know. So what we're going to look at today are verses 33 and 34 out of that uh, glorious passage that we just read. (laughs) And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, I I feel like I felt last week, what do do we say to these things? I mean, how how do you possibly process this? How do you possibly just (laughs) absorb this and understand it? But that's what we pray this morning, and God does what we can't do, thank God. Um, So we're going to start with 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And this, this verse, it's small, but man, it is concentrated. It is Absolutely loaded, plumb full, about to bust. And of course we have to get the context. Excuse me. What we need to do is reach all the way back to verse 18, which we should have up there. Where Paul says, this is way back in verse 18 of chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now keep in mind we're looking for context for our passage today. So, please... Please, please 
remember that this whole passage going back to verse 18 of chapter 8 is referring to how Christians should respond to suffering, to doubt, to blame, to shame. Because <clears throat> let me tell you what would have been real easy to do last week. It would have been real easy to walk out of here last week and say, God has given us all things. All things are yours. And it would be real easy to walk around and just say, whoa, this whole Christian life thing is just awesome all the time. It's just peaches and cream. It's just beautiful. It's easy because everything is mine. Everything belongs to me. And guys, it's just not true. The Christian life is a life built around suffering. Our example, Jesus, suffered. He was a man of suffering, well acquainted with grief. And if he, is, he didn't escape suffering, what makes us think that we will? Listen, the Christian life is marked by suffering. And in the midst of having all things given to us by God, it's in the midst of suffering. So it's not a Pollyanna, pie in the sky, by and by, we're just oblivious to what's going on around us. It's in the midst of suffering. Again, I want to reiterate that. What we're going to talk about today, which is glorious, is still in the midst of suffering. Because that's what we've been prescribed. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So, the context is how we should respond to suffering. And in verse 18, we see that we have to see our current suffering in light of eternity. What we suffer now is not worth comparing to what we'll have in eternity. In verse 23, the picture is of us groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here this groaning, again, shows us suffering. We're groaning, waiting for that final step in this process, which is the redemption of our bodies, when our whole being will be freed from sin and perfected in the presence of God. So there's suffering, there's coming glory, there's groaning. And then verse 26, we have the Holy Spirit of God interceding for us when we don't know how to pray as we ought. And from 26, we see 28, verse 28, the great 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, in those all things, does that include suffering? Yes, absolutely. All things are synergistically being caused to work together for our good. Our sufferings, our hardships, our sins, our failings, our fallings. And all the good stuff too, the rainbows and the butterflies. All of it is being caused to work together for our good. All things. And then verses 29 and, 20, 29 and 30, let's read that. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So you see the scope of God's plan from foreknowledge before the foundation of the world all the way up to our complete, final, perfect glorification. And who drops out of that? Who falls through the cracks? Who messes up so much God finally gets done with him? Nobody. Nobody. Who suffers so much that they just can't make it because, God, if I'm going to suffer this much, I'm just going to fall away? Nobody. Those whom he foreknew, 
He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. So as you suffer, as you wonder if you're going to make it through it or not, you are going to make it through it. And God's going to bring you into glory as you suffer. So we see God's plan starting with His foreknowledge, His setting His love on His people before the foundation of the world. And that His plan included predestinating those foreknown, those foreloved ones, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if He foreknew and predestined them, He called them, He justified them, and He glorified them, which serves to reassure us that we won't fall through the cracks in the midst of all of our groaning, suffering, and struggling. And then last week, we saw the wonder of God being for us so that no one can stand against us. And then we did see that there are a lot of things that will present themselves against us, but ultimately they will not stand against us. And we saw that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, and that since He did that, He will surely, with Jesus, give us all things. So you can see why Paul wanted to reassure us that we have something to look forward to that can help us put our current suffering in proper perspective. He did not say you will not suffer. He said it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And in some of you are in the midst of some stuff you're going, I don't know about that, God, because right now it feels really bad. Paul reassures us and you that the glory coming is exponentially greater than the suffering that you're experiencing now to give you a hope in the midst of your storm. He doesn't try to explain our suffering away or try to make it disappear, but rather He gives us a very sure hope, an anchor to hold us fast in the midst of the storm. But He surely knows that some may still wonder, some may fear that falling away or being cast away or even question God's ability to keep us when we sin, when we question, when we wander, and when we wonder. So we get verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And I want you to keep that conversation between Christian and Apollyon in the back of your mind. I want you to just keep hearing Apollyon say, but you've already failed. But you've already failed. But you've already failed. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. As we suffer, we will at times wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, if somebody, some demon, some spirit, some thing, some injury would find good grounds to accuse us before God. Anybody done something since they've been saved that they're pretty sure God didn't approve of? Yeah. Anybody sinned since you've been born again? Anybody sinned since we started this service this morning? Yeah. Let me say something up front. And let me be very clear about sin. Sin is not okay. And what you're going to hear today is that we are pardoned. What we've sung about this morning is that there's a place where sin and shame are powerless. I do not want to imply in any way, shape, or form that sin is okay. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Sin is awful. Sin is an affront to a holy God who cannot stand sin in His presence. He will not stand sin in His presence. It's not okay to willingly or unwillingly sin. It's not okay. Please have that cemented in your mind as well. But we've all just said, yeah, we have sinned. 
since we've been born again. Anybody failed to live a perfect, holy life since you've been born again? And what do you think the enemy of our souls is doing about that? I want you to look at Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Listen, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now the accuser of the brethren is who? Satan, the devil. And what does it say here that Satan does? He accuses us, the Christians, the brethren, day and night before our God. So Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is accusing the brethren. (laughs) That's what he does. The brethren of Christ, he accuses them before God. Now can you hear him? Look at them. They can't even go to church, much less sit through church without forgetting you and doing their own thing. Look at them. They're slugs. They're maggots. Look at them. Look what that guy's thinking. Look what that guy said to his wife before he walked in the building this morning. Look what they did back here. Look at them. 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 Even now, day and night, he bends the ear of the Almighty, pointing out our deficiencies, our sins, our shortcomings, our inadequacies. And man, do we give him some ammunition. But, back to the Romans verse, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Hmm. Well, surely, by the Bible's own admission, the devil shall bring charges against God's elect. He's standing in God's presence accusing the brethren day and night. That's true, but in the context of the verse, it means who shall successfully bring any charge against God's elect? So the question is, doesn't the devil have grounds to successfully bring charges of sin against us to God? And the answer is yes and no. And I got you there, didn't I? We do sin. And the devil can surely point that out to God. Look what Jason just did. But Christian, get a hold of this. God hears the accusation and does what? It is God who justifies. (laughs) That should really whip us into a frenzy. That should really get you dander up. That should really get you just plumb, dumb, excited. Listen, this is the pattern. Are you ready? We sin, Satan accuses, God justifies. I need to say that again. This is the pattern. We sin, Satan accuses, God justifies. This is monumental. This is life altering. This is so hope infusing, it really should change the way we see ourselves, the way that we see our accuser, and the way that we see our God. We talked about justification in Asian Station. What does it mean to be justified? Can you bring that up there, Ken, that definition? Dikaioo. 
40 times in the New Testament, translated in the authorized version as justify 37 times, and to be freed once, be righteous once, and justifier once. And it means to render righteous or such he ought to be, or such as he ought to be, I think it should say, to show, exhibit, events, one to be righteous such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. To declare, this is one I want you to focus on, to declare, pronounce, one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. So now, think about that. So we sin, the enemy accuses and God renders us righteous. God declares us righteous as we ought to be. <laughs> it just don't even sound right. But it is. We just read it in the Bible. God's Word. We sin, the enemy accuses, and God says, righteous. We sin, the devil accuses, and God says, righteous. And... Is it done once or is it something done more than once? Now, I don't want to bore you with verb tenses, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to bore you with a verb tense. When it says that God justifies in this passage, it's a present active participle. I don't know what that means. Let me tell you what it means. It means that the action taking place, which is the justifying, refers to an action that is currently taking place or which takes place repeatedly. What that means is that there is a justification once and for all. We saw it in Romans 5.1. I think we've got Romans 5.1 up here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was in the past. It happened at one point. And there in Romans 5.1, the verb for since we have been justified is aorist passive participle, which means it happened in the past and was done to us. So that happened. But what happens when we sin after conversion? Do we need re-justified? No and yes. <laughs> the justification mentioned in 5.1 was sufficient to give us peace with God once for all, but the enemy will continue to accuse us before the Father day and night. So back in Romans 8.33, God continually, perpetually justifies us before the enemy and justifies us in our own hearts. We sin, the enemy accuses, and God justifies perpetually, continually. And God is the ultimate judge. So in Romans 8.33, the question of who shall bring any charge, any charge against God's elect is highlighted by showing that the judge is the one justifying the accused. The prosecuting attorney has laid out a very compelling case. Look what Jason just did! It's disgusting. It's sin. And God... The judge says righteous. <laughs> the judge is the one justifying the accused. So there is no one, not the devil, not the world, not even our own self-damning heart and our own self-damning conscience that can bring any charge that God will not dismiss. 
Since it is God who justifies, which points back to Him foreknowing, predestinating, calling, justifying, and glorifying us, designated here in this verse by saying that we are God's elect, since God justifies no one, nothing can successfully bring any charge against us, God's elect. I want to give you two scriptures to illustrate this. The first is a beautiful picture, and it's kind of tucked away somewhere deep in the Old Testament where you may be familiar with it and you may not be. It's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to do what? Accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan... The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Man, that's good stuff right there. It didn't say that Joshua was standing there trying to defend himself. It wasn't saying that he said, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. He's just standing there in filthy garments. Dirty. And the devil's going, this guy is dirty. Look at him, he's filthy. He's nasty. He's yucky. And what does God say? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Which is God saying, shut up, little devil. I chose this one. And I'm going to clean him up. Shut up, little devil. You're not in charge of his garments. I am. Can you put yourself in Joshua's place? You know what really cracks me up in this passage? Is Zechariah here. They're like, put clean clothes on him. Zechariah's like, hey, put a clean turban on him too. <laughs> I'm like, okay, clean turban. <laughs> but really, we should be cheerleading for each other. When we look around and people are accusing our brothers and our sisters, we should be saying, hey, put a clean turban on him too, God. God says, okay. We'll put a clean turban on him. Man, I don't know if there's a better picture of what we're talking about here than that right there. It's just beautiful. Joshua, like us, stands in God's presence, unclean in and of himself, and the enemy is hurling accusations, standing at his right hand, it says. Enemy's saying he's dirty, which is completely warranted. He's dirty. And God says, shut up, little devil. God rebukes Satan and says, his choice has been made and his saving work has been done. So basically God says, I chose him. I, I set him apart. I plucked him from the fire. So shut up, little devil. And there may be some of you here who don't need the devil to accuse you. You do a pretty good job of that yourself. Take a look at this truth from 1 John 3, 19 through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For 
whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. <laughs> Did you hear that? Your secret sin, God knows it. That thing that makes your heart hurt and makes you kind of not want to go to God because of, well, God, God did this. God knows it. And God is greater than your heart. So when your heart condemns you, God, who is greater, says, shut up, little devil. Quiet your heart, my son. I know. I know everything. Justified. God knows everything, and when our own hearts condemn us, He's greater than our hearts. And according to our passage in Romans today, He justifies us. So who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Amen and amen. Now, I can hear, all, I can hear you all, but, and hey, wait just a second here, what's going on? We have to wonder and we have to question, but how can God justify me when I am sinning? How can God do that when I do the things that I know are wrong? And if we're not careful, we develop this picture of God as a nice grandpa who just winks and looks the other way when I do something wrong, who says, we won't tell your mama just to make us feel better. And to that I would say, absolutely not. That is not who God is. That is not what God did. Justification is not God overlooking our sins, winking and playing sleight of hand with them. Watch, oh, sin's gone. Oh, sin's gone. Look at verse 34. What does He do with our sins? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here we see how God has handled our past sins and how He handles our sins now. What did He do with our sins? Propitiation. He punished them in Christ. We'll get more into that in a bit, but for now, let's turn to what this verse is saying. While the focus of the last verse was on God and what He has done, we now see the ministry and the work of Jesus, the Son, in our lives. The previous verse had said, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer turned out to be nobody. Here the question is, who is to condemn? Now what does it mean to condemn and who would try to condemn us? To condemn means to damn, to judge worthy of punishment. So who can damn a Christian? Who can judge them worthy of punishment? And I'm sure you're seeing the pattern here that these are rhetorical questions, which means that the answer is no one can. Okay, so yay, that's good, right? Right? But why? Why can't anyone judge us as worthy of punishment or damnation? Because in the verse, we see that Jesus did something, or more accurately, some things. But initially, let's remember, judgment belongs to Jesus Christ. Just to be clear, so you can look at it plainly, look at John 5, 22 through 23. Jesus says, "...the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son." that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So who has all judgment? The Son. Who is the Son? Jesus. 
So when we talk about judgment and who can judge us, our first thought has to come to Jesus because He has the right and the might to judge us. So who is there? What judge is there to condemn us? Ultimately, it would be up to Jesus to do that. But what did He do? What does He do? Look at this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the judge who should, who could rightly judge us for the sins we've committed, the sins we are committing, and the sins that we will commit, the judge does three things. He died, he was raised, and he is interceding for us. So the one who could condemn us was himself condemned and was done so in our place. Now this is Gospel 101. The basics of what it means to understand and believe the Gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, sinless and blameless, lived a perfect life and then went to the cross and took our sins upon Himself and bore the punishment for those sins at the hands of God the Father Himself. God punished our sins in the body of Jesus. That's propitiation. And how do we know this? Let me give you some textual examples. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all see where I get these songs, right? It's not hard. I mean, this is what we've sung all morning long. I mean, just <laughs> I'm like, yeah, there's that song. There's a... So for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 3, 23-25 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. And then there's one more to look at, Hebrews 2, 17. We're talking about propitiation. Therefore He had, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus was set forth as a propitiation. He made propitiation and He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Imputation. God's righteousness given to us. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become His righteousness. He humbled Himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah. Name above all names. So our judge took our sins upon Himself and died for us. Who is there to condemn? Who is there to bring a judgment resulting in punishment for us? Nobody. Because our judge took our punishment for us. This is the beauty and glory of the gospel. Listen, Christian. And if there are unbelievers here, listen to the offer that stands in front of you today. Jesus took the punishment we deserve upon Himself, so He's not going to prescribe punishment for us. As He hung on the cross, He said, it is finished. And then Paul goes on to say that Jesus not only died for us, but more than that, He was raised. That's back in Romans 8.33. Now what does the resurrection of the crucified and buried Christ have to do with this? We've got to go way back to Romans 4, four whole chapters ago, seven, eight months ago. Romans 4, verses 22 through 25. 
And Paul's referring to Abraham's faith in this passage. And he says that is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you catch that in there? Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. We've talked about that when He died for us. And then it says He was raised for our justification. So in our passage today, we saw that it's Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised. Listen, we can't be properly justified if Jesus wasn't resurrected. A dead Jesus that stays dead was just a martyr who died a sad death. But a resurrected Christ is back from the dead to show that God the Father approved of and received the offering for our sins. And His newness of life is shared with us so we now have new life to overcome the sins that tempt and test us. So He didn't just punish our sins with His death in the past, but He gives us new life, resurrection life, to overcome the sins of our present. But wait, there's more. The end of the verse says not only did Jesus die for us, not only was He raised for us, but He is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Now for sure, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are wonderful, amazing, shoutable news. But this part, guys, (laughs) this part is liberating and empowering. Where is Jesus Christ now? Well, He's in my heart. Maybe, but no. Where is Jesus Christ now? Listen, Jesus who became flesh at one point in time. Are we on the same page? Jesus came in the flesh. He was a physical person. Very God of very God and very man of very man. He became flesh at one point in time. He died in flesh at one point in time. He was resurrected in glorified flesh at one point in time. And He ascended in that glorified flesh. And then what? He did what? The glorified physical body of Jesus sat down on His throne. Steve read it this morning in Psalm 110. Psalm 110.1 I think is... The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And listen, when the Jews, especially, were reading this passage in Romans, when it says, at the right hand of God, their mind would have instantly went back to Psalm 110. Because this was a messianic prophecy that the Messiah, Christ, would come, and when He had accomplished His work, God the Father would say to Him, Sit at my right hand. He was going to reign in victory at the right hand of God. The Jews knew this. So that's why we read that at the beginning of the message. But then Hebrews 1.13 brings it up in the New Testament, and it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So where is the physical Christ now? Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Now that right hand of God is a figurative way of saying a position of power and authority. But physically, listen, Jesus Christ is in heaven on the throne, waiting for the completion of God's plan for the earth, for humans, and the universe as a whole. Stephen, when he was being stoned, looked up into heaven and saw Jesus. And it says in Acts 7, 55 and 56, But he, 
Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen says he physically sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now it's interesting that Jesus is standing there. That's for another day. The point is, Jesus Christ, the physical body of Jesus Christ, is now in heaven at the right hand of God in a place of honor and power, awaiting the end of things. And what is He doing there? Our passage in Romans told us, He is interceding for us. Did you hear that? He is interceding for us. Now look, get the picture. Who also is standing before the presence of God? Accusing us day and night. Satan, the enemy, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. Look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. What is, God, what is Jesus saying? Look at me. Look at me. Scars. It is finished. Who do you think God is going to listen to? Look at them, look at them, look at them, look at them. Now, Father, look at me. Jesus Christ, at this very moment of history, is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for believers. <laughs> the risen, exalted Son of God, who died and was buried, then ascended to heaven, is interceding for us. Now, you figure there might be something else He could be doing? Running the universe or something? And He is. In Him, the Bible says, all things hold together. But in the midst of it all, He is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus is praying for us, pleading His work, His worth on our behalf. Look at me. Look at me. We saw a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So pair that with our passage from today and He is interceding for us and always lives to make intercession for us. This puts His work for us not just in the past, not just in the present, but as long as Jesus lives, He will be making intercession for us. He will be praying for us, standing in for us. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Petitioning God for us. So is He going to condemn us? Is the one who died for us, was raised for our justification, and who is ever living to make intercession for us going to condemn us? The obvious answer is no. So if Jesus, who is at the place of power and honor at God's right hand, who has been given judgment of all things, if He will not condemn us, who else would? Who else could? If the judge of everyone is literally our defense lawyer, who could possibly win a case that was presented against us? And the obvious answer is no one. Ever. Never. Way back in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As long as now is now, we will not be condemned. As long as Jesus is alive, He will ever be living to make intercession for us. Because the only one who could legitimately condemn us is Jesus and He is on our side interceding for us, and we are one with Him. We are in Him.
And that is unreal. So what's this mean for us? How do we possibly apply this? First, I want you to understand we are wholesale Trinitarians. Wholesale. One God and three persons. I've got some passages here that talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we've already seen in Romans 8. Romans 8, 4 is the... In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Romans 8, 11. We're looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So when I say we're wholesale Trinitarians, we see the role of the Spirit. What did we see in today's passage? We saw God doing something in verse 33. And we saw the Son doing some things in verse 34. So the Spirit, the Father, and the Son are clearly displayed in Romans 8 as being part of our necessary parts of our salvation. You say, well, I don't know about this Trinity stuff. I am more than willing to talk to you about it. There is glory in the doctrine of the Trinity. Our salvation is founded in the doctrine of the Trinity. Explore that. Pray about that. That's some application for you. You say, well, I don't get it. Well, you can't get it. It's like nothing else in the universe. The doctrine of the Trinity is not like an egg that has a shell, a white, and a yolk because... That just doesn't work because that shell gets cracked and you can separate the egg from the yolk and all that. Uh, there's nothing you can use to explain the Trinity. I'm not trying to get you to understand it. I'm trying to get you to see that it's a clear doctrine in the Bible to be gloried in. That's the first point of application. Second point of application. Since all, all of God is involved in our salvation, how secure should you be in your salvation? Man, let me tell you what. I'm not saying this to demean or decry anybody, but these people that believe you can lose this? I'm sorry, I just don't get it. Who is there to condemn? I know you're, I know you're thinking, but, 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 but. I'm just saying, the judge, the defense lawyer, they're the ones doing the work. I am in Christ. And let me ask you a question about security. What can you do with a salvation so secure that you knew the entire Godhead was working to ensure its security? Would it reduce your anxiety at all to know that your ultimate destination is secure? Could you possibly do what Paul was saying in Romans 8.18 to know that this present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that's coming because you were so secure in the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to secure your salvation that you're like, I will make it through this. This hope is an anchor for my soul. My salvation is secured by the Godhead. Not by my striving, not by my trying, biting my lip and doing better tomorrow than I did today. If that's where your faith is at, God, have mercy on your soul. And sin is not okay. We established that early on. It's not okay. It's not okay to sin. We should be progressively becoming more like Christ. But in the midst of our sin and our suffering, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the God of the infinite universe is working to secure your salvation. Rejoice in that. Rest in that. 
There's some application for you. Last one. The first one was Trinitarian truth. The second one was security, salvation, secure salvation, sorry. The third one is war weapons. You have been given today heavy artillery to fight the accuser of the brethren. I mean the howitzers. I'm talking about the atom bomb. When he comes and he's, you hear him accusing you before the Father, when you are committing that sin and you hear his voice start, yes, I did sin. But it is God who justifies me. Yes, I did sin. But it is Jesus who was crucified for me, who died for me, was buried for me, was resurrected for me, and who right now is standing in the presence of God interceding for me. So shut your mouth, little devil. The Lord rebuke you and your accusations. We can go to war with those weapons. We can fight the enemy of our soul with those weapons. And we can fight our own rebel hearts when they condemn us. And we can say that God is greater than my heart. It is God who justifies me. God justifies you. Christ died for you. Christ was raised and is at the right hand of God right now and ever lives to make intercession for you. No the power of hell... No scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. Them some strong weapons, guys. Use them. Back to Christian and Apollyon. And we'll end. We do not count on our good works to save us. Satan loves to point out our hypocrisy. It's one of his favorite weapons. And Bunyan knew this. So in the Christian's mouth, he places the following reply to Apollyon. When Apollyon says, Have you not fell in your service to him already? Christian says, All this is true, and much more which you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these sins possessed me in your own country. I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, but now have obtained pardon from my prince. Let's pray. God, we have indeed obtained pardon from you. You have given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and you will never let us out of your grip. You, God, are the one who justifies Jesus. You are the one who died, who was raised, and who ever lives to make intercession for us. God, what shall we say to these things? Except thank you. We trust you. We believe you. Help us to live like it. By the power of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? <coughs> now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good one.